0: Well, good morning, New Life Calling out. I'm so excited to be here this morning as we uh, have a look at what God might have to say to us. I hope you guys have come expecting. I hope as a room we've come prepared and expecting to believe that God might actually show up this morning and reveal something stunning to each of our hearts. If you have your Bibles, I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and open them up. We're gonna to go to the first letter of John. It's called 1 John, it makes sense. We're gonna to go to chapter four. We're gonna start in Verse seven. Now, why should you do that? If you haven't met me before, my name is David Skambry. I get the joy of being one of the pastors in this community. And it is absolutely an amazing privilege to be here Um, and to be wrapping up our four-week Christmas series. Now, we, we are in a series right now talking about the things that Jesus... Brought into the world and made possible for us today because of who he is and what he did. And the first one we spoke about was peace. And Scott taught us that peace isn't just the absence of conflict, it's this Jewish word, shalom, and it is the presence, this eternal presence of flourishing and thriving. It happens in our souls, between each other, and between us and God. And then week two, uh, uh, a lead master, Mike, came down, and he taught us about joy. And he said, joy isn't happiness. Happiness is based on happenstance. It's based on what's happening around us. Whereas what what the Bible promises, what Jesus brought in, was joy. Joy is a spiritual thing. It's a beautiful gift that transcends the circumstances we're in. And every person who knows jesus can experience and so scott comes in last week and he taught us about hope week three hope and he said joy and peace they are beautiful gifts that are real but our experience of them today is tied to the thing that we are putting our hope into We are limited in our experience of God's blessings and goodness by the hope, by the object of our hope. And he invited us to see with clarity that God has made a promise that we can count on, that we can trust, that we can build our lives on. And it's not just wishful thinking. It's a guarantee. We're just waiting for it to happen. And so today, I get the joy of wrapping up week four, and we're talking about a subject that I think we need to take really seriously. It's a subject that God takes seriously, and it's a subject that the author of this letter takes seriously, and the subject is love. And I don't know if you're like me. When I got told I was preaching on love, I rolled my eyes. So if you are like me, let's dig into this scripture and let's see what John has to say. Verse seven, beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given to us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed in the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears mustn't be perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or his sister, he is a liar. And for the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen, surely cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Would you join with me as we pray? Holy God, I thank you so much that we've gathered this morning as your children, loved by you already, wanted and cared for by you in this moment, that your spirit is alive on us as your people, that you are not withholding yourself or restraining yourself, But out of love for us, you are moving closer and closer. And I pray this morning, God of the universe, almighty and beautiful Father, the one who created everything and all the stunning and wonderful things we get to enjoy, I pray that this morning, oh Father, you may open our hearts. You may soften our hearts. That this morning we may not just be talking about love, this strange concept, but we may be talking about you and we may fall more in love with you as we come to know how deeply you love us. God, break down our hard and stony hearts. We love you. And Jesus, thank you that you are enough. And on that cross, you were and will always be enough. We praise you in the mighty and beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. 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 You ever thought you knew about something before? You ever been like, I know this thing. I know what's happening. You ever thought you knew something before? And then someone just pops up out of nowhere and just, like, rudely, I must say, bursts your bubble, and like, your mind is blown. You just learn so much extra, so much new stuff. So I was in grade five. I know, it's the last time it happened. I was in grade five. (laughs) I was in grade five. Um, and I was sitting in assembly, and uh, every week, every Wednesday, we had uh, an assembly, and someone from our community would come on in, and they would sit, and I think the, the goal was that people from our community might make us young school kids, better people with better hopes, I don't know, um, but th- th- we had this reverend who used to come in, and other people used to come in, it was cool, and one day, we had a guy there who was speaking, and uh, just to give context, I have absolutely no clue what he was talking about. Like, I haven't got the foggiest idea, anything else. This is the only moment from this speech that I actually remember. He said, hey, who here knows the nursery rhyme? ring a ring of roses And I was grade five, cute little innocent David, you know, whatever. I know that nursery rhyme. He never puts their hand up. I know that nursery rhyme. And he's like, sure you do. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody knows that nursery rhyme. That nursery rhyme is famous. I know the lyrics. I know the tune. For those who don't know the nursery rhyme, it goes something like this, ring a ring of roses pocket full of poses. Poses, Posies? Posies. There we go. Uh, you know it. Fantastic. There we go. Uh, a tissue, a tissue, and we all fall down. Yeah. I did. <laughs> um, and, so, and so this. Um, he, he asked, and I was thinking, of course I know this. Everybody knows this, man. I know the lyrics. Um, I know the tune. If there was a dance, I'd know the dance. Everybody knows this. And he, everyone's hands up. Yep, everyone knows this one. Great. And he goes, how crazy is it? we grade five, grade fours, whatever. We sit in the room and we're going, it's not that crazy. It's about a guy who likes flowers and he falls over in the grass. It's not that crazy, you know. <laughs> and, you know, my hand goes down slowly. I'm like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. He goes, how crazy is it? And he's talking about the Black Plague. Now, if you don't know what the Black Plague is, the Black Plague was really bad. It's kind of a big deal to Europeans. Like 30 to 60% of Europe was killed by the Black Plague. Like it's a bad, bad thing that happened and, and people suffered. And so if you're in Europe particularly, the Black Plague's kind of a big deal. And England, depending on the day, is in Europe. So here's the thing. We, we, um, yes, anyway. we, I was sitting in the room and I was like, grade five, I got this and I was like, whoa, it's about the plague? a tissue, a tissue, then we all fall down. Whoa, that falling down is not them rolling in the grass. Hot. Diggity, that's bad. And I just thought, well, I mean, I don't know what I thought. I was grade five. I can tell you what I was thinking. But I remember being surprised by it. So much so that like just a few years ago, I was hanging out with a friend uh, in Australia and he comes up to me and I don't know why he brought it up, but he was like, bro, have you ever heard how crazy nursery rhymes are? And I was like, Yes. Let me tell you about my grade five assembly. Like, you know, and I was like, you ever heard the Ring of Ring of Roses? And he was like, sure have. And I was like, it's about the plague. And he goes, I know. And I went, oh, okay. And he went, have you ever heard a Humpty Dumpty? And I went, yeah, I guess everyone's heard of Humpty Dumpty. He's an egg. He's walking on a, roll, uh, roll on a wall. He falls down. He gets hurt. Some guys try to put him back together. Easy. Everyone knows that one. And he goes, yeah, um, yeah they, they actually couldn't put him back together. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, he, he doesn't make it. And I was like, What? he's like, also, um, there's no mention that he was a walking or talking egg. I don't know where you get that one from. That that was the real shocker for me. I was like, wait, he's not an egg? But these nursery rhymes are dark. And we sing them to our children. That's crazy to me. And that's my sermon. No, hey. (laughs) How is it that we can hear something over and over and over and over again? We can know the words. We can know the tune. And if there was a dance, we would know all the moves. And yet we can totally miss what's really being said. Verse seven says, Beloved, let's one another, uh, let's love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is love. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is love. Say it like you mean it. God is love. For most of us in this room, this isn't like someone's sitting in the room and they're going, whoa, God is what? I've never heard this before. Shocking revelation. For most of us in this room, God is love is something we've heard over and over and over again. And if you were in kids' church or you went to a Christian primary school, like you know this tagline, right? God is love. We know the words. We know the tune. If VeggieTales made an episode on it, man, we would know the dance moves. Uh, like, like, like these nursery rhymes, though, here's the thing I'm wondering. Whether we might know the lyrics in the tune, but we don't know what it means. We don't know the content. You see, God loving us, God loving us, that's not something we can just be placid or roll over. That's not something small. If we are loved by an unyield, uncom- unyielding, uncompromising, kind and caring, compassionate, mercy-filled, unconditional love of a God who is able to do more than you could ever, ever imagine. He loved us. Surely that can't just be something we go, God is love. It's gotta mean something weightier than that. Love uh, is not just superfluous to us in our faith. It's central to what it means to be a Christian. It's central to the narrative of hope and of peace and of joy that was brought forth by Jesus as he traversed eternity to be found as a fetus in a womb that he not only created, but was holding together as it held him together. And I just wonder today if maybe we might be sitting in a room where God might be about to reveal to us something more deep and beautiful, something in our hearts that we know uh, logically is true. We know rationally is true, but God wants to unlock a part of us to believe and hope and bank and stand on the remarkable truth that is God, who is love. Verse 7, beloved. The word beloved literally means you who are loved. You who are loved. Beloved, you who are loved, let's love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent His only Son into the world so that we may live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but as I read that, there's a bit of repetition. John seems to be saying something, a certain word, a couple of words, over and over and over again. And in the Bible, when that happens, we know that the author is trying to make a really big point. And the more he repeats it, the more he wants you to get the significance of it. So when I read that, and and, and, and we read it back, if you want to take the time, go back and read it. You go back and read that. It says love so many times. I almost forget if I'm saying the word right. You know, when you say a word so many times, you forget if you're saying it, right? I almost forget how to say the word because he says it so many times. And And it seems like what John's trying to do is ensure that no one can ever read this letter without leaving, experiencing and being filled and challenged by the significance and centrality of love to that which God has done. And I think the first question I'm forced to ask is I hear that. If love is so important, if love is so central, if love is so significant to the Christian faith, my question would be, then what is love? What do you mean when you say love? And this is particularly true in the season of Christmas, right? In the season of Christmas, the crescendos on the pure love of God poured out in unrelenting self-sacrifice and kindness for you and for me. And as a consequence of this love, God, the King, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Lover of this universe, He forsakes His mantle as chief enjoyer, chief of glory, chief designer, And he takes on the status of humanity in all of our tiny and dirty and small and grubby and limited realities. He takes on this reality, not counting his greatness a thing to be clung to, but rather clinging to his love for us. Even above his own self-comfort, his own self-esteem, his own self-glory. We're in a season where love governs it. Love is central. And we are standing, we are sitting, I should say, largely in a church talking about a God, a God where love is central. And so if we don't know what love means, I'm going to say we're not going to get very much out of this place. We're going to struggle to really grasp how wonderful and brilliant and beautiful the faith of, of Christianity this season and who the, the friendship we have for God actually means and what it actually is. And so I'm going to say let's lean in today. Let's lean in today. Who knows what God could do with soft hearts, open hearts. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world. If there was any verse in the Bible, we know the tune. And if there was a dance, we'd know the dance too. It's this one. For God so loved the world. I want to point out that his motivation here was love. Everything he's about to do was motivated out of one thing, an overwhelming love. For God so loved the world that... He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but shall have eternal love. Do you notice how it was love that drove the God of all reality onto our doorstep, into our homes, uh, onto our tables, to cross that infinite divide, to dine with us, befriend us, and pull us out of the brokenness we keep bowing down to? But what does the love that drove God to move so mightily, what actually is it? What does it mean? I think for some of us, love is kind of like Disney. You know what I mean? Yeah, love is like Disney. Like we, we think of love and we think of every single princess movie ever. We oh, It's this deep affection. It's really emotional. It's like an emotional ecstasy. It's a sense of passionate want for something. Yeah, I know what love is. I've watched every Disney movie ever. For others, perhaps love is a deep mingling between us and a sense of worth or a sense of self-worth. We love that which we find ourselves in. Our love is in that thing we find our own value, we find our purpose, we find a reason, we love that which gives us meaning. For some, love is a deeply rational decision, a weighing up of values, a weighing up of whether to or to not make an investment, of whether it's worth sowing and reaping a reward. Love is a reflection on what is important and an understanding that love is the logical response to a situation or a truth. And for others... I think love is a sacrifice. I think love is this action, this this movement, a commitment, a decision, an endurance, a pressing onwards on behalf of the thing we love. And in the Gospels, Jesus talks about love. And in Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 30, he teaches us this, that, that we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts and with all of our soul, with all of our minds and with all of our strength. But what I notice as I read this is what it teaches in this section is not that love is any one of these four things, but that we love through these four things. That's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love isn't secluded to any one of these particular things. Rather, our love expresses itself emotionally. It expresses itself through our sense of value and worth. It expresses itself through our understanding. And it expresses itself through the way we take our abilities and our skills and our endurance and we lay them down. So then, if if love isn't an emotion, and if love isn't an understanding, and if love isn't self-sacrifice in and of itself, then what is the substance of love? Throughout the whole Bible, particularly through chapter 4, I should say the New Testament, particularly through chapter 4, we we see this idea of the God who is love, uh, and it's quite explicit. And there's a word that the New Testament uses to define this love, and that word is agape. Now, agape is a Greek word, but you'll actually still hear it painted and plastered on Christian ministries all throughout the world because it's so central. To what we believe as a people. And the word agape, it, it literally translates to both the word, uh, to, to an intermingling of the word affection and benevolence. Affection and benevolence. It's, it, it, it's, in other words, an abundant celebration for the thriving and goodness for the object of our love. We wanna see it win. We wanna see it do well. We wanna see goodness abundantly thrive in that person or that thing's life. We love it. John Markoma says it in this way, and I do love the way he words it. He says, Here's my best shot at a definition of agape love. It's a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that a person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. Love is the desire not to take, but to give. It's the settled intention of the heart to promote good in the life of another to see the beauty inherent in another soul and then help them come to see it as well. This is love. This is agape. No wonder the Bible paints this kind of love as the kind of love that can change everything, that can hold nothing captive, that can break every chain, that can heal every wound. It is no wonder that this is how it paints and describes God. This is God's love for us. It's a compassionate commitment to our good. You see, it says that we love because first God loved us, which means the love we return to God is only the love he first showed us. And Jesus says the love we're meant to return is this love that we do it with our soul and with our uh, our heart, with our soul, with our mind and with our strength. And what that teaches us is this, that God's love for us is with his heart. It's with his soul. It's with his mind. It's with his strength. What does this look like? It's a love that manifests in him emotionally rejoicing and delighting over us. Zephaniah 3.17 shows this beautifully. It's a love that manifests in him pouring purpose and worth upon us in such wonderful ways. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his art piece, his workmanship, something he would hang on a wall and sign. And he's given us a great purpose as well. It's a love that manifests in his infinite intelligence curating a strategy of salvation and an environment of goodness that we get to go out and enjoy every single day. You ever seen a sunset before? That doesn't happen if love wasn't present. You ever seen colors before? They are stunning. You ever heard music before? My goodness, tasted something delicious? Wow, these things don't exist without love initiating them because it was the intention of God that he would take everything he knows and he would mix it together to create something beautiful for us to experience his love through. And it's a love that manifests in him enduring our failures, persisting in his strength, to love us, to conquer our dying parts, and to wrestle our very being from the reins of brokenness that we seem to keep handing those reins back to brokenness, right? But rather than that, he brings that shalom peace. He brings grace and rich kindness to each of us. My friends, this is the love of God. Do you know he adores you? Do you know that? He guarantees that you are a richly valuable human being. Not just for what you do, don't get mixed up. It's who you are, it's, it's what he made you to be. Do you know God enjoys your presence? Do you know he's blessing you in ways that are beyond your understanding? eternal ways that actually beautifully, abundantly bless you forever. Not just ways that we might think might be nice and they actually end up hurting us in the short term, but he is is lavishing blessing upon your life. Do you know he's proud of you? He's excited that your name is written in the book of life and he'll get to spend forever in your presence as you spend forever in his. Do you know God, God isn't giving up on you? Do you know that? He's not giving up on you. He really did suffer for you. He really would leave the 99 and did leave the 99 to chase down you. Why? Because he loves you. God abounds in love for us with his heart, with his soul, with his mind, with his strength, and he evidenced this eternal love everywhere we look. But in no greater way has he manifested that love than than in the sending of Jesus to rescue and befriend and redeem us from the brokenness and the deep pit that we couldn't get out of. And he did it because he loves so richly, so powerfully every single one of us. Verse 11 says, Beloved, or you who are loved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God remains in us and his love is uh, perfected in us. By this we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given to us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Friends, God's love can be hard to receive. There was almost a calamity in the richness of God's love. And that calamity is that it's an incomparable splendor. It's unlike anything else in the universe. And as such, what we do is, because we're trying to understand such a big and beautiful thing, we, we rationalize, we shrink it down to these experiences and even below the experiences of love that we show and receive every single day. But notice in 1 John four eleven, he says, Beloved, you who are loved, if God so loved us we also ought to love one another. And what I want to point out here is that we are called to respond to his love by loving one another. But that response, that call, that overflow of love comes after two commissions to first know and sit in and experience the love he has for us. Firstly, it says, beloved, you who know love, you who are loved. And then it says, if God so loved us. And then it says, Overflow with love. Friends, what John's doing here is making it explicitly clear that to live as a Christian, we must feast on the abundant love that God has for us, and we must be utterly renewed by his love and its power. Now, I don't know if you can relate to this, Uh, very well, but I have a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, He is an amazing, amazing guy, Um, but he has a terrible habit, like dreadful habit. He'll go to Coles in the afternoon, buy a hot barbecue chicken, loves it to shreds, come home with it, stick it on the counter, and, and then get distracted. And three hours later of it sitting there, he comes up to me and goes, hey, David, do you want a chicken roll? And I'm like, I don't want a bacteria roll, thank you so much. I would really rather not die today. My guts aren't made of cast iron. You know, it's hard to feast on food we don't trust. It's hard to feast on food we don't trust. And, And this is the problem I think we bump into and experience when it comes to God's love is that as we spend so much time rationalizing and minimizing it to our own experiences and to our own understanding and to our own expression, we rob it of its unique splendor and therefore don't trust it with our lives. And I was just thinking about it as I wrote this and I thought about some of the ways that I know I in my life so far have minimized God's love and I wonder if today these might be helpful for you to hear. Perhaps you may relate to them in some way or perhaps you may think none of those, but I have other ways that I minimize the love of God. The first way I do it is that I describe God's love as impersonal. I say, God, your love must be impersonal. And I do it in a really like, it sounds smart, but it's actually really dumb. But I I say, God, if you are love, then you can't not be love. And therefore, when you're loving me, you're not really loving me. You're just loving because it's who you are. It's not this expression of intimacy and affection. It's mandated by who you are and therefore is opposed to rich intimacy. It feels more like cold, distant morality. And I get this sense sometimes that God's love for me is actually not for me at all. It's just an overflow of who He is. He can't help but love me. So it's not really for me. And the problem is, what this does is it actually minimizes God's love to a force. It's real, but it's not beautiful, it's not personal, it's not biblical. Or sometimes I don't make it impersonal that way. Sometimes I just skip the logic and go straight to my heart. And I'm like, you know what? I do believe that you're love. You say it, I believe it, whatever. You are love. And I believe that everybody I know is loved by you. But I also believe that I'm different. God, I'm more sinful. God, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more broken. I'm more dirty. I'm more wounded. I'm more unlivable. God, I, I believe that you're love, but I don't believe that you could love me. It's kind of just... Everyone else. I don't know if anyone relates to this. Perhaps our experiences, our, our relationships with our parents proved this to us. Or even our parents couldn't love me. Wow. It's clear, right? Maybe an ex-partner or a partner has proved this to us. We just, know, they couldn't even love me. Is there one, one thing, that they couldn't even love me. Or perhaps, you know, a relationship with our children, proves this, and we go, God, and they don't even, how could, I'm just not the one that people love. I'm just not someone, God, you could love. And so as we minimize God's love as impersonal, his love becomes this muted idea, a distant, beautiful, but distant song lost on the wind. We hear an echo of a note here and there, but we never get to feast on its full and true symphony. Make it impersonal second thing we sometimes do when we try to minimize God's love is we make it insufficient. Something along these lines, maybe you'll relate. I'm sure he loves me. I'm sure he loves me. Sure, I'm certain of it, confident, whatever. He loves me. But that doesn't change the fact that I just keep sinning, that I keep failing, that I let him down over and over and over again. He might love me, but that love, it just can't be enough to overcome his disappointment for me. Anyone relate? This love, it can't be sufficient enough to abound in goodness, right? He must see me as dirty. He loves me, but he loves me reluctantly. I mean, just look at my prayer life or my Bible reading life. I sit down and I go to spend time with God and it doesn't matter how much I try and strive, I just feel like he's not speaking to me. I just feel empty. I feel, why, and why would he want to speak to me? I just keep letting him down. But in this what we're doing is we're minimizing God's love to an exchange, a purchase, an acquisition, something that we're actually just too morally bankrupt to afford. And the third way we minimize or rationalize God's love away from what he proclaims it to be into something we can understand is we say it's incongruent. You know, say it all you will, but where was God's love when? When? Where was God's love when I was going through this? You know, theology might say he loves me. Sure, the Bible might be a love letter, whatever. Jesus might be love on legs, but if God loved me, how come I went through this thing? Why didn't he step in and stop it? Why has this been my story? Why has this sickness continued to exist in my body? Why did I lose that person I love? Why did that thing not work for me? Why am I still in this situation? God, if you loved me, how come? You know, we can find his love and the expression of his love theologically true, but still at the same time deeply incongruent with our experiences of reality. And if we can't experience the reality of it, surely how can we be expected to believe it? And in this, we minimize the infinite riches of God's love to the finite reaches of our minds, of our understanding. And I guess in some way, what we're doing is we're exchanging relationship for God's servitude. And when we get a measuring stick out, we're measuring the capacity, the length and the limits of God's love by his ability to be an unlimited vending machine of our gain. And God, if you haven't lived up to what I want and what I need and what I'm telling you, then how could you love me? If these are the struggles that we face and we do a sermon on love without addressing them, then it's going to be hard. And at best, I think we might leave and go, that was a nice speech, <laughs> right? But I, uh, I don't think God is in the business of nice speeches. Don't get me wrong. He's perfect. And so no matter what speech he does, it's going to be pretty nice. But I don't think that's why God is here today. And I don't think that's why he's called us to be here today. You see, God has a purpose through his scripture and through the time we spend in this room searching the depths of his love and his heart to make his purpose known unequivocally that we, uh, you and I, are more than lumps of flesh that he is compelled to love. Do you know that? That he is far more in love with you than your inadequacies are stacked up against him. Far more, vastly more in love with you. And that his hand has wiped the tears from his own face and from yours in all those very very real, very true moments of deep suffering that you've walked through. He doesn't minimize that. He hates it. That's why he's got a promise of a day to come where that won't be real anymore. And yet still, he has wielded goodness and mercy in and through your life from your first breath until now in ways that I just want to say you will never be able to imagine until you look back from eternity and go, what, that's what you were doing. How could you have been so good to me and how could I have been so blind to it? And friends, the best news is he's not done being good to us and loving us yet, right? So my ask is this, would you turn to him today? With a softness, an openness, a willingness to taste and know the love of God afresh today. Because the great calamity of God's perfect love is the imperfection and the limitation of those to whom it is advancing into. You and I, the great calamity of his love is that his love is perfect and we're too small to contain it or understand it or perceive it or receive it. And so God's love almost hits a brick wall, but God's love is not so small that it can't even break our hearts and enter into our lives. So how does God respond? Good question. Thanks for asking. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence. Everybody say confidence. That we may have confidence. It was like the most unconfident way of saying confidence I've ever heard in my life, guys. Everybody say confidence. There we go. So that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, we also are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and he hates the brother or sister, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him That the one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. How does God respond to the very real, very true doubts and fears that make it hard to feast and to enjoy the rest of his love? Let me tell you how he doesn't respond. He's not in heaven shocked. He's not like, you what? God's not in heaven shocked. He's like, welcome to humanity, you made it, good job. I mean, we look back at biblical characters, go and have a look at Moses' like, You think Moses trusted the love of God? Go back and read that story. He doesn't wanna go because he's like, God, you're gonna let me down, you can't use me, right? Go and read Abraham's story. Go and look at, go and look at King David, right? Read a psalm or two, man. He is continuously wrestling with what he knows to be true and with what he feels to be true, right? Or well, go and look at the, the life of Paul or the life of Peter, Welcome to being a part of the church. Welcome to relationship with God this side of eternity. You are not uniquely broken, my friend. You are not strangely warped out of shape. Your heart is not strangely uh, covered and wrapped in cello tape so much so that God's love can't get through. Friend, you are not even close to being unlovable to God my friend, please hear that. God knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your failures. He knows your passions. He knows every reason that you might have for shame. He and friend, what he does when you come back to him, and we see it in the story of the prodigal son, he pulls out the cloak. He pulls out the garment that represents you as a son or a daughter of him, and he puts it on your shoulders, and then he says, welcome home. He goes to the drawer and pulls out the family ring and puts it on your finger and says, welcome back, my beloved child. Then he goes ahead and celebrates welcoming you home. For once you and I, his children, were lost, but now we are home. And what does God do at the end of that story? He parties. Friends, this is the love God has for us, lavishing it over us, partying, celebrating, rejoicing, and enjoying the moments we have in his presence. What a stunning thing to be a part of. Take a look at verse 17. It says, By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, we also are in this world. God responds to the struggling and the difficulty of trusting and sitting in His love with a promise about tomorrow, with a guarantee that a day is coming when we will taste the love He has for us without obstruction. Friends, a day is coming when we will stand before God and our judgment will be dealt with. When that broken and twisted and darkness in your soul, all the bits that minimize and warp God's love, all those bits inside of us that are insecure and can't quite receive it, all those bits inside of us that don't know how to overflow with love, a day is coming when all those bits inside of us will be taken and dealt with. And there will be peace. And there will be love. And God's love will overflow Within us, unobstructed judgment will be dealt with because of Jesus, because He loved you, and because He loves me, and because He loves the world, we can stand. And it's not, it's not based on how good we are at receiving His love. How good we are at receiving His love is not going to change how thick. And overflowing and saturating his powerful and beautiful love is as it pours over us over and over and over again. Friend, think about it this way: if a parent has a child and the child struggles to know that their, their parent loves them, they're not going to go, "Well, you exceeded the love I was going to give you, so now, boom, I don't love you anymore, right? That's not what a good parent does. And if you do that, don't. Um, the, the, the answer is, you're like, "You don't know I love you?" Like, I'm so sorry. And they pull that child into the most warm and intimate and emotion overflowing embrace. That is what a loving parent does. And if that's a loving parent on earth, I can only imagine the love with which God has for us. Friends, we are children of God. And because of Jesus, all of that beauty and wonder and goodness of Jesus is actually in us. It says, as he is, we also are in this world. Friends, when we look in the mirror and we see something that God can't love, let me tell you what God sees. Someone not only he already loved, but someone he currently loves. He sees Jesus. He sees you. He hugs you. He cares for you. And we look in the mirror and we go, I just don't see someone that, I, that could ever be the kind of person that God could turn to with soft eyes and embrace. I'm going to tell you this right now. God is turning to you with soft eyes. And all your failures and all your shame, once were, he sees Jesus. As he is, as he was, we are in this world. But what about today? See, God gets it. He gets that it's difficult. But he doesn't say, just forget about it. Don't try and feel my love. He actually has this invitation to us to to trust him, to muster whatever faith we can muster in this very moment right now, here now, today, and to let him in and receive and believe in his love more deeply with whatever we can. And God answers our rationalization of his love, uh, our fear that it's impersonal, our fear that it's insufficient, our fear that it's incongruent. And he responds not by saying, how could you? He responds not by minimizing our suffering, but by saying this here child, let let me show you. Let me lead you to the rich place of love that I've set aside for you to dwell in. Let me show you. And today we choose, as he makes this invitation even right now, whether we reply with open hearts, and we turn our attention towards God's love and, and we receive it as he lavishes and overflows it in our souls and our hearts and our minds. And he does it in all the strength and all, all the ways of love that he loves us. He's doing it right now. And maybe you think to yourself, God doesn't love me, I don't feel it. My friend, your feelings are not the only way. God is loving you and he does love you in that way. Let me tell you, but he loves you so abundantly more. And in this moment, in this room right now, God wants you to know that he loves you. And he is not done, not even close showing you that. An amazing author by the name of Henry Nowen says at the end of his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, he says, Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me and to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God? Rather, it's how am I to let myself be loved by God? Friends, over this Advent season, it's a time we get flustered, distracted, and busy, and things get annoying, and you know, it's hard. But I believe that today, I believe in this Advent season, God is also asking us to create time in our lives, to beckon us aside from the busy into the quiet place with Him, to do nothing more than let ourselves be found and be known and be loved by Him. And I wonder how as we do this, I wonder how, as we receive the overflow of his love, I wonder how God is going to go and fill and meet and overflow the cup of love we have, so much so that people in our world are seeing it, that we may just find it easy to choose intentional love to our neighbors, to our families, to people we know, to people we don't know. Friends, this Christmas, God is not done moving. This isn't a celebration of something God years, God, something God did two thousand years ago alone. It's a celebration of something God has done through history. It is something. It is a celebration of an advent to come in the future. And friends, it is a celebration of how God is still traversing the infinite divide to enter our lives and our rooms and our hearts in this very day, every day, and every moment. And He wears. And He and He's saying, "Will you?" turn? Will you repent? Will you open your heart and just let me in? Will you accept my love? And so we're going to pray. Once we pray, we're going to respond in worship by declaring about the love of God. But I invite us as we pray to really, not even really worry about what I'm saying, but to turn our attention and our minds and our hearts and our, and our soul and our strength with all that we can towards God right now. And this might be uncomfortable. This might be hard for some of us. I'm going to say, try it anyway. Turn to him and say, Lord, you love me. Wow. I'm here. I want to know it. And Just sit and be. Don't try and force him. Don't try and force yourself to achieve it. Just be. He will show us his love. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much that you are desiring to show your love to us today that God, you are not done working and moving in the lives of your people. But God, you have a purpose and a plan today, in this very moment, in this very room, to break down hard walls, to unshackle old chains, to heal what's become scarred, to freely flow your love upon every one of us, because it is not a thing that only certain people get. It's something you have personally, significantly, and congruently poured out upon every single person in this room because you know each of us. I pray as our hearts are turned to you, Lord, your Holy Spirit by your power will be reminding us that you are enough. And that whatever reason we have to be afraid, perfectly the perfect love casts out of fear. you are enough. I pray you could begin the work of overflowing our cups to know how deep your love is. And more so, we may be excited by the fact that any love we taste today isn't even scratching the surface of the love you have for us, that your love for us is infinite and unending. Maybe in this room you're someone who, who has known that God is love your whole life, but you feel like you've never tasted the love of God your whole life. And I want to tell you, and I believe this, that God is moving and God wants to end that today. That God wants you to know His love for you is enough. And, and perhaps there are other people in the room who have never even heard of the love of God. And I want to invite you, I want to invite you this morning to also turn towards Him, to welcome Him. Jesus, we praise you, we celebrate you. What a beautiful and good God. What a friend. What a father. What a hope. Thank you that a day is coming when it would all be done away with the brokenness and the shame. And we will be able to bask in your love forever. Hallelujah. Jesus, thank you that you are enough. More than we could ever imagine. And in your mighty name we will pray. Amen. How about we stand and respond in worship?